Good morning, everyone. We're going to be in uh, Luke's Gospel, Chapter 1, so uh, if you want to turn there, we'll be in there in a few minutes. First, I want to show a couple um, pictures and just talk about a few things before we get into the actual (coughs) uh, message. So uh, let me just pray as we start. Father, we thank you for today, just uh, that we can gather and assemble here in your name, that we can direct our thoughts heavenward, Lord. And we pray, Lord, just for uh, just the peace of your spirit to be in this room, Lord. We pray, Father, that you would speak during this next hour and that the things that you want to be communicated would be communicated. We thank you for who you are. We thank you that you came into our world and died that we might enter your world, Lord. We thank you so much for that. And uh, we just commit this time into your hands and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And uh, we'll put the pictures up in a minute. I'll just <clears throat> tell you a few things about what I've been doing. There's actually two separate ministries that are interconnected that I've been involved in in Austria. I've been, for the last year, those of you that don't know, uh, serving at the castle. It's called Schloss Heraldek in Milstadt, Austria. And uh, it's a castle that Calvary Chapel bought in 1989. Uh, This was while the Iron Curtain was still up. They thought that they were going to use it to bring pastors from behind the Iron Curtain and to do retreats and things like that. Little did they know that the whole communism was going to break up the following year and they were strategically placed there. So it's basically a uh, Christian conference center now. It was a Bible college during much of the 90s but um, around 2002 the Bible college moved to Hungary and they were going to sell the castle but they couldn't find a buyer and then after a while they felt like God just wanted them to keep it and it's been a, uh, a wonderful Christian conference center and retreat center over the years where missionaries and different people who are involved in in, uh, different ministries across Europe come there for a week at a time or a few days and they just get refreshed. It's a wonderful, beautiful location. So I've been involved in that and I'll talk a little bit more about that. There's also a Calvary Chapel about eight miles away, Calvary Chapel Spital. It's in kind of nestled in the Alps a little bit, uh, not the biggest city is uh, Salzburg, which is about two hours away. Um, but the church in Spital, I've been involved there doing some Bible teaching and also leading worship, both in English and in German. It's a bilingual church. So I figured if I watched enough YouTube videos and I got the chord charts, I could figure out how to uh, sing the songs and the Lord bless that. And actually to hear the congregation sing along, you know, there's something about that. Like, wow, this is actually working. But it's all, at the end of the day, it's all just the grace of God working through human fragmentation. So I'm involved in the church there in Spital, and I'm also involved in the ministry of the castle. Um, at the castle, I've done pretty much everything under the sun from day one. I stepped in there and uh, I got there last January and it was snowing and we had a pastor's conference that was getting ready to start. So got the shovels out and started shoveling snow, uh, cutting and splitting firewood, just um, Everything that you can imagine. I actually got to run a jackhammer too. I never did that before, so that's kind of that's kind of fun. Broke up a little bit of concrete, that sort of stuff. Uh, Wash dishes. Uh, I was asked to lead our staff devotional time, so I've done that for the uh, most part of this past year. We do a Monday through Friday. The Castle staff. It's a relatively small year-round staff. We have a devotional time, so I've been leading that. Uh, so that's been 
fun to do that. Um, I do have some pictures, Matt, if you want to put the pictures up. And I can sort of see them from here, so I'll try to give you a quick overview. This is one of the uh, retreats that we had. This is a group of people from Ljubljana in Slovenia. They came, and um, so we're just hanging out in one of the rooms there. You can go to the next slide. That's a picture of the castle from, I don't actually live in the castle. There's another building about 100 yards up the hill called the villa. And, um, but that's a view of the castle from the villa. And you can, next slide. Another, that's a rainbow. There's actually a double rainbow. It's hard to, I don't know if you can see the other, maybe it didn't appear yet in that picture, but it's pretty cool. That's a view from the, the castle. And next, another view from the castle. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I did <coughs> was, um, well, I'll tell you a little bit. We have this program called SOS. It's Summer of Service, where kids from the states or around the world come and serve for the summer. That anywhere from they can be between ages 16 to 26, I think. And they work in the different departments. There's uh, grounds and maintenance. That's the department that I oversaw this past year. There's also hospitality, uh, the kitchen, the coffee shop, and just a lot of different things. So. These kids come for anywhere from four weeks to three months and serve for the summer. And when I found out that I was going to be overseeing some of these kids on the grounds and maintenance, I started to pray. And I said, Lord, I pray that you'll send me just at least one person that wants to work. And that was this guy, <laughs> Ben. He's from uh, Calvary Chapel Modesto, just a great guy, 17. He's a great guitar player, just a humble servant. I had a lot of other guys work with me too, but this was the guy that God sent, I believe, in response to my prayer. So that's Ben. And uh, he was very helpful over the summer. And you can go to the next slide. Um, that's uh, Goldeck, which is a mountain across the uh, lake from the castle. And Austria has quite a religious heritage, although um, I wouldn't say that they're very spiritual at this point in time. So, they, But there's a lot of crosses and things like that on high hills, and that's one of them. Uh, that's another view of the castle from the driveway, and that's another view. That's the driveway. The driveway has uh, three or four different switchbacks. As you're, It's pretty steep, and uh, we have just firewood stacked along the way. We burn a lot of wood there. Next slide. Uh, yeah, we have sheep. Well, we don't have sheep, but it's a very pastoral area. There's a lot of farmers and uh, cows and sheep and livestock and that sort of thing. So, yeah, there's some more sheep, a lot of hiking trails and things. Uh, fog on the lake, mist on the lake. The castle uh, sits on a lake. This is a picture I took from behind the castle um, last winter with snow. I, I've been on the roof of the castle and I've been in the basement, so, and pretty much everywhere in between. Next slide. <coughs> when I got there uh, the first week, it was really busy because we, were, we hardly had any staff that were there and we had the pastor's conference. So um, I was working in the kitchen, got to wash a lot of dishes with my friend uh, Jens from Hanover and his wife. And it was just a great week of fellowship there. So next. Uh, one of the things that we did uh, a lot of times in the wintertime when it's a little bit slower, we do a lot of improvement projects. So uh, there was a sink room in the castle that we ripped out and then we converted it into a bathroom. And about 25 years ago, when Calvary first had the castle, they um, had different construction teams that went over and they did some building and things like that. And what they did when we were ripping out the um, 
this particular sink room, on the framing, there were all these scripture verses that were written that these guys from California just like wrote on the framing when they were doing the construction. And here we are 25 years later taking the stuff down and kind of doing new stuff. And so John uh, 14.6, what, what is that? I think it's Jesus said that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So I took a, a picture of that. There are a bunch of other ones too. But, so. Uh, that's Attila and another guy, Billy. Attila was a Hungarian. Uh, he still is a Hungarian guy. But, um, he moved to the States, uh, but he was at the castle for five years, and he kind of showed me a lot of the important things there. So we um, that's the drywall that got thrown out of a third-floor window, and we're shoveling it into a trailer there. So that's uh, Attila and his son Armin I helped them move actually they moved back to Budapest before they went to the States so I got to uh, drive their stuff in a van there behind their car and spend a couple days in Budapest uh, yeah another view of the lake it's a beautiful lake beautiful place we did go skiing one day last winter I don't want you to think that I spent the whole winter skiing I just went one day but uh, this is the Multal Glacier and it's about 10,000 feet it's open year round the Austrian national ski team trains there. So we went there with a, a group of kids, Scottish kids from Scripture Union who were at the castle for a uh, ski retreat. This is uh, Danny. He's from Sicily and he works in the coffee shop at the castle. So, and another view there. It almost looks like you're in an airplane, but you're not. This is uh, Kirk and Josh. They're both on staff at Calvary Costa Mesa. Kirk is a painter. Josh is a carpenter. They came to do some work at the castle. Uh, yeah, Budapest, I spent a few days there. Again, Budapest. And Budapest. And just one of the uh, all kinds of hiking trails everywhere. That's just a uh, trail that's pretty high up there in the Alps. Cal. <laughs> <laughs> And yeah, waterfall, a lot of stuff like that. They have very good water. That's uh, Adrian and Ben. Ben is the guy that you saw before. Adrian was another guy that worked on the grounds with me. And we actually swam in that. Um, it was a little, like a pool sort of thing. Um, I took a group of the SOS students to Venice for the day. It's about a four-hour ride, so this is just some of the gang in Venice there. Venice is a city that's built on water. So that's the Grand Canal there, I think. Ooh. Yep, lots of boats on water, boats on water. And that's uh, Daniela, he's from Sicily and he worked on grounds with me too. And a boat in Sicily. We're not Sicily, um, Venice, yeah. This is, uh, Manfred is the assistant pastor at Calvary Chapel uh, Spital. And he's also the translator, and we took some people to the airport in Salzburg, which is very near uh, Berchtesgaden. Berchtesgaden was um, Hitler's hideout where he had the eagle's nest, so we visited there. That's what this is. It was, I think it was a gift to Hitler on his birthday in the late 1930s. That's the view from the eagle's nest there. And that's actually the eagle's nest where they had some sort of meetings, the Nazis had some meetings. That's it right there. And that's Manfred again. And I split a lot of firewood. I think that's a pile of oak right there. 
though. Burns nice and hot, almost like coal. Firewood. Benches. We redid a bunch of um, benches over the summer, <coughs> and that's one of them. Okay, that's a great bench, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Okay, great. That's fine. <coughs> okay, so that's a little bit. Yeah, we can call this fine. That's a little bit about uh, what I've done over the past year. And um, in going to the castle, the castle has been a place where a lot of missionaries have transitioned through a lot of the churches and the works that are currently happening in Europe. They started from people who initially went to uh, serve at the castle. And when I went there last year, I felt like God was calling me there for a season to be helpful, but ultimately it was going to be a gateway that would uh, lead to something else. And at this point... Um, it looks like a door might be opening in York, which Stephen is familiar with. He's been there, right? Um, I was praying for a vacation at the end of the summer. It was a really busy vacation. And um, over the last couple years, the Lord has crossed my path several times with Dave Sylvester, who is the uh, pastor of Calvary Chapel, York, England, and also heads the Bible college that they have there. It's in the north of England. And he invited me over just to check it out in October. So I went to the UK and I was involved in an outreach that they did there and just the Lord did some neat things. And um, it's not a done deal yet, but it looks like the door is opening to go there and serve, possibly do some teaching and helping out with worship. And um, so I'm praying in that direction and I'm going to a missions conference Next week in California, I'm going to get together with Pastor Dave, and we're going to see, um, we're just going to see what God does if the door, you know, completely opens and that sort of thing. So that's the direction that I am uh, praying in. So let's pray one more time, and we'll get into our text. We're going to be in Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, starting in verse 5. And uh, again, Father, we thank you just for the work that you're doing here in this place, and we thank you also for the work that you're doing around the world in many different places as you're um, changing human lives and you're just directing your church and just doing all kinds of wonderful things, Lord. We thank you for that. And we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us today, Lord, that, we, that you would just give us a fresh word from your Holy Spirit, Lord, as we look into the scriptures. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, <clears throat> it's the Christmas season, and we just celebrated the birth of Jesus a few days ago. There's the, the famous account. I love the uh, Charlie Brown Christmas and the account that Linus reads there in, you know, in the Gospel of Luke. What I uh, was praying about and felt like God leading me to do is to back up a little bit and talk about how John the Baptist was born. And that is in that same chapter, but just a few verses previous. So let's take a look at uh, verses 5 through 25. And we have uh, Zacharias ministering in the temple. And it says there, actually, let's stand up and we'll read the word together. So the Lord bless the reading of your word. And it says, There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. 
His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth, and they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer is heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zacharias said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. But when he came out, he could not speak to them, and they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. So it was, as soon as the days of his service were completed, that he departed to his own house. Now after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself five months, saying, Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. And you can be seated. So the passage here opens up. It tells us that it was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea. Notice that it's a time that's marked by a secular ruler. In the Old Testament, if we look in uh, the book of First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, it, it will say, for instance, in the in the eighteenth year of Hezekiah or or you know, in the days of Jeroboam or something like that. Here it is in the days of Herod, and that tells us that there is no Jewish king on the throne at this particular point. It's the days of Herod, and uh, he's obviously a secular ruler. This was Herod the Great. It's the same Herod that would order the killing of all the infants two years old and younger after the visit of the Magi. Um, After the exile, the Jewish people have been back in the land for... At this point, the exile was 586 B.C., when, because of disobedience and idolatry, uh, the Jewish people were carried away uh, to Babylon, 586 B.C., 
the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed, Jerusalem was destroyed, and that's the last time that there was a king on the throne in Israel, a Jewish king. Um, the Davidic covenant is something that we read about in Second Samuel chapter 7. It's also uh, listed in First Chronicles and Second Chronicles as well. And if you remember when uh, David was going to build a temple for the Lord, the prophet Nathan came to him and he said, do everything that's in your heart. But as Nathan went back that night, the Lord said, no, don't. he's not the one to build the temple. But uh, So Nathan comes back and he tells David that you're not going to be the one to build the temple, but God's going to do these other things for you. And David, you know, the Lord speaks to David and he, he promises... Uh, well, first of all, a land, but also that his throne would be established forever. The throne of David would be established forever, and you will not fail to have a, a man to sit on the throne. Well, some years after that, the exile happens. What happens? The Jewish people are carried away, and there's no Davidic king on the throne. So it looks like the promise of God has failed. And this is one of the things that after the exile the Jewish mind wrestles with how come there's no king? What about the promise of God? What it does is it turns their hearts more toward the Lord as far as seeing him as the fulfillment. But anyway, we'll get back to that. Uh, so Herod here is the king of Judea under the authority of the Roman Empire. And it kind of gives us an idea of what it was like in those days. There was a, a spirit of apathy in the land, there was also religious corruption. This is only about 30 years before Jesus begins his ministry, and one of Jesus' big, biggest problems was with the religious establishment that didn't receive him. So you kind of get an idea of what the religious climate was like, and there's a sense of apathy in the land. There hadn't been a prophetic word from God for about 400 years. The, the last word in the Old Testament was from Malachi, and that's chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, and it was about the coming, incidentally, the coming of Elijah. And uh, Malachi writes, he says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. So that was the last prophetic word that the people of God have received, and it's like there was that word, and then there was the 400 years of silence, and now what's God doing? Is God going to fulfill his plan? So you have the situation where Israel is, in a sense, is God finished with us? What is God doing? But there's still the temple worship going on. But even though it was the days of Herod, even though there was a worldly power governing the lives of the people of God, it tells us in verse 5 that there was a certain priest named Zacharias. And all of a sudden the spotlight zooms in and we have a picture of this man who was a faithful man and who was serving God to the best of his ability in the context that he found himself. And sometimes we find ourselves in that situation where we don't fully understand what is going on around us and, and whatever, but we serve God as faithfully as we can in the context that we find ourselves. 
and so that's what we have with Zacharias. God takes note of people, and you know, He takes note of Zacharias. Zacharias was just going about his priestly thing. He had no idea that day when he woke up that he was going to become the subject of a portion of Scripture. But that's what happened because God had a plan, and you never know when God is going to crash into your life like Zacharias with a, a very special purpose. So even though the people of God are in subjection to a foreign power, God has a man, and God always has a man. He always has a vessel that he can work through. The, the Bible tells us in, in the days of Elijah where he had the contest with the prophets of Baal, you know, and after that, Elijah said that I alone am left. I alone am left, basically. And the Lord said, well, actually, there are 7,000 others that are still left. So God has a person that he can use. And, you know, the Bible tells us, Second Chronicles 16:9, that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on those, on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to him. So, you know, God's looking for people to use, and he's looking for a heart that's loyal toward him, a, a heart that's sensitive to his spirit. So, Zacharias happens to be that man in our current passage. He's serving the Lord to the best of his ability with a loyal heart. The passage goes on to tell us how he and his wife Elizabeth were both righteous before God and blameless. Now, there is this religious corruption and spirit of apathy and all that, but there's still a righteous remnant that believed in the promises of the coming of a Messiah. Um, who are some of them? Well, if you look in uh, Luke chapter 2, it tells us about Simeon and Anna, right? It says that uh, Simeon, that he served God and it had been revealed to him that he would not depart until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. And he comes into the temple, and then you also have Anna. So there, it, it shows us, the scripture shows us that no matter how tar dark times are, there are still people who believe God. There are still people who serve God and have a heart that's loyal to him. And I think that that's the same in our day. We can look around, and it's a definitely a dark world, but there are still a lot of people out there that love God and are serving them, and God is still moving in his church today, and he's still fulfilling his purposes in the same way that he did back in these days. I believe that he's doing the same thing in um, our day today. So let's take a little, uh, a quick look at Zacharias. It tells us that he was of the division of Abijah. During the time of David, the priests were divided into 24 different divisions. The division of Abijah was uh, one of them, and uh, he was a descendant of Aaron from the tribe of Levi. The priests in each division were on duty twice a year for one week at a time. So this was one of Zacharias's weeks that he's in Jerusalem. It tells us that he was chosen by lot to burn incense. And, you know, you think of the idea of lot, it tells us sometimes that was a way of determining God's will in the Old Testament. And then there's the idea of the Urim and the Thummim and, and that sort of thing. But in the end, nothing is really left to chance when it comes to what God is doing. This is a particular way that um, he used, that his will was revealed, but it's not like it was a, a chance thing like, oh, look, 
Zacharias won, and it's his turn. God knew, and it was God's plan for that particular man of that particular lineage to that to perform that particular priestly duty that day. So for Zacharias, it started out as a fairly normal day. Zacharias didn't have the script of what his day was going to look like. He didn't know all this stuff was going to happen before the end of the day. It was just, oh, another day, you know, it was... I'm sure that he was thankful to be serving the Lord and, and there in Jerusalem on duty as a priest, but all of a sudden it's like the spotlight shines and like and you know, it's like he perceives that God is beginning to move his hand, the sovereign hand of God. This would have been the only time in his life that he would be able to burn incense. It would probably be the defining moment of his career as a priest. There were so many priests that uh, it was just, you know, it wouldn't be able to do it more than one time in his life. And it's a unique moment that God has given Zacharias. The golden altar of incense was in front of the curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies in the temple. And there are a lot of, di- you probably have a diagram in your Bible somewhere, or so there's plenty of stuff out there you can take a look at that. Uh, it was made of acacia wood overlaid with pure gold with four horns protruding from the, the four corners. And the priests were to burn incense on the golden altar every morning and evening at the same time that the daily burnt offerings were made. And it's interesting. I don't know how often they replaced the curtain or if ever they replaced the curtain, but it's likely that the very curtain behind the altar that Zacharias stood to burn incense is the same curtain that would be torn from the top to the bottom 34 years later when Jesus died on the cross. It tells us in Matthew's Gospel that the veil of the temple was torn from the top to bottom. This would have been the, the curtain that separated the those two portions in the temple. So Zacharias is burning incense in the temple and tells us in verse 10 that the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. And in scripture, incense is a picture of prayer. Zacharias's burning of incense is symbolic of his prayers and his prayers as he interceded for the nation because he was the designated priest. So as he burned the incense and it rose up, that would be symbolic of all of those prayers. And in uh, the book of Psalms, we see a picture of this in Psalm 141, verse 2, uh, from David. And David writes, probably 500, actually a 1,000 years before this, he says, May my prayer be set before you like incense. May the lifting up of my hands be like the evening sacrifice. So David is not a priest, but he understands the significance of what's happening in temple, in the context of temple worship. It says, may the lifting of, may my prayer be set before you as incense and the lifting of my hands like the evening sacrifice. So these two things, the priest would burn incense at the time of the evening sacrifice. And David is saying, let my prayer be like incense rather than actually physically burning incense. Let my prayer be that. And let the lifting of my hands be as the evening sacrifice. And the idea is that David is lifting his hands because he knows that it's God. You know, we with the, our New Testament context, we know that Jesus Christ is the perfect sacrifice. So we don't 
burn, you know, we don't do like a roast or whatever unless we're going to eat it, but we don't offer any sacrifices, but we lift up our hands because we know that Jesus Christ has become the ultimate sacrifice. So David has this prophetic insight in this psalm a thousand years before Jesus was born that that's how the church was going to be worshiping in spirit and in truth, no longer offering the animal uh, sacrifices, but praying and lifting hands to the Lord. So that's a neat picture. Uh, you wonder if Zacharias is thinking, because obviously he knew the scriptures, you wonder if he's thinking of that verse while he's worshiping in the temple there. So what <coughs> would Zacharias be praying at this point as his priestly function? He would be interceding for the nation. His nation is in subjection to a, a foreign power. They have a limited sense of rule there in the land of Israel at this point in time. And it, basically the ungodly have power over the people of God. So Zacharias is likely praying for the Messiah to come and to sit on the throne of David. They're still trying to figure out what, you know, Lord, you've promised that there would be a man to sit on the throne. What is that going to be? Is that what's happening with that? And uh, so likely Zacharias would be praying for that as the faithful remnant in Israel, like Simeon and Anna were praying. There, if you think of the disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, they asked the risen Jesus, they said, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? So there's this idea of a kingdom consciousness among the faithful people of God that we're looking for God to come and establish his kingdom. And the fact that there wasn't a, a Davidic king on the throne caused the faithful to look to the Lord to see how he was now going to fulfill that promise. So we have Zacharias, and it's after the likely the evening offering. It could have been the morning, but it looks like it was probably the evening offering. And Zacharias is there in the holy place, and the incense is rising and he's just probably reflecting on these things. And God, look at our nation. We're your chosen people, but Rome has dominion over our country. And Lord, you, you promised that there was going to be a man on the throne, but we don't see that. We don't, we don't understand. And it's been 400 years since we heard a word from you. And sometimes in our lives, we may pray the same prayer over and over again, and it doesn't look like... God is listening, it doesn't look like. And then all of a sudden, when you, when you least expect it, God is able to crash in. But at the same time, I can't help but think that there was another prayer of Zacharias that he very well may have given up on and possibly even stopped praying for at this late stage in his life. We looked at, in verse 7, it tells us that they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. It's likely that uh, they had been praying for a child a good portion of their married life, David, or rather Zechariah and Elizabeth. And, you know, it's just this thing that they carried with them over the years that, you know, we don't have a child. And it was viewed as a curse in that particular context, the fact that they didn't have a child. And they walked around with just the stigma that was associated with it. Verse 25, it tells us that this was a reproach to Elizabeth. It's, there's this area of her life that there's no fruit in, and she's barren, right? 
And sometimes as we move through our lives, we may not see fruit in a particular area. And, you know, we walk around and we feel barren and we bring that thing before the Lord. And it seems like God is silent in that area for a long time. And it seems that he's forgotten. Sometimes when the Lord wants to do something big in your life, he might shut something down for a time so that you seek him. You know, the Bible tells us in uh, Psalm 56, verse 8, that he puts our tears in a bottle. And, uh, you know, biblical names are neat. They're kind of, in some ways, they're like Native American names, but biblical names mean something. They have meaning. So the name of Zacharias, what do you think that means? Well, it means that Yahweh has remembered or God has remembered. And how about the name of Elizabeth? The name of Elizabeth, it means the oath or covenant of God. So if you put those two names together, Zacharias and Elizabeth, God has remembered his covenant. God has remembered his covenant. And this was the, one of the big things that the people of God were grappling with. How is your covenant now going to be fulfilled? And Zacharias, in his own life, Lord, am I going to have a child? God's answer is yes to both of those things. So Zacharias is in here burning incense this one time in his whole life that he gets to burn incense in the temple. And all of a sudden, the angel of the Lord appears before him. We know that's uh, Gabriel from verse 19. <clears throat> and he's standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Um, just as an aside, uh, where else does Gabriel appear at the time of the evening sacrifice? In the book of Daniel, right? It says in uh, Daniel no, chapter 9, verse 21, it tells us that the angel Gabriel appears to him at the time of the evening offering. And we're not going to get into that. That's a whole different study where, you know, he receives the prophecy of the 70 weeks. But that ultimately is a prophecy that the angel Gabriel gives that pertains to the coming of the Messiah. It pertains to God's plan of redemption being worked out in human history. And here, like how many years later, 500 years later, we have the same angel giving another birth announcement that pertains to God's plan of redemption. And a few verses on in, in our book in Luke that we're not going to look at today, the same angel Gabriel is going to go to Mary and give another message that pertains to God's plan of redemption for humanity. So you see this whole plan being worked out through the people of God through history. Yeah, so anyway, we have in our context here, we have Gabriel appearing on the right side of the altar of incense. And what do you think that did to... I mean, if you saw an angel that all of a sudden appeared to you, it would, yeah, it would blow your mind. <coughs> so, verse 13, the angel says, your prayer is heard. Your prayer is heard. And have you ever, you know, been praying about something for a long time and you just maybe even agonizing in prayer, and you just get that sense in your heart that your prayer is heard. Do you ever get that? I've had that experience before. Just you feel like God is saying, I've heard your prayer. And that, that's what, here we have Zacharias. And the angel says that your prayer is heard. And he begins to tell him that this most unlikely sequence of events <coughs> is getting ready to unfold. He tells him that 
his wife, his wife Elizabeth will bear a son. That son will have a specific name. He will be called John. Sometimes when God, you know, if God names a child, that means that he's going to do something very special. Um, Gabriel says that many will rejoice at his birth, that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. And we know that when Elizabeth goes to visit Mary, or is it Mary that visits Elizabeth? I forget which. But anyway, it tells us that John the Baptist leaps in the womb of Elizabeth at the presence of Mary because Jesus is in the womb of Mary, right? So there's a rejoicing that happens. Uh, Gabriel tells Zechariah that uh, the child will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He says that uh, John the Baptist will go before Jesus in the spirit of in the spirit and the power of Elijah. So he's just doing his priestly function, and all of a sudden, this angel appears to him and tells him that this crazy, unlikely sequence of events is going to happen. And let's read on. Zechariah's reaction in verse 18. He says, "How can this be?" I am an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. So he understands the physical impossibilities that are involved with the prophecy, and that's usually our first reaction, you know, when we, we feel like God's spoken something to us. How is this going to happen? You know, it's our first reaction to look at all the physical impossibilities and just, okay, it can't happen because this and this and this and all these different things. But, you know, Genesis 18, verse 14, uh, there's a similar announcement where uh, Abraham is told that he's going to have a child, and Sarah laughs at the angel's announcement because she doesn't really believe it's possible, but the angel says, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? We just, the other night, uh, Christmas Eve, in, in Luke chapter 1, we read that uh, for with God, nothing will be impossible. Now, Ephesians 3.20, it says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be glory in the church now and forever. So God is able. The thing that Zacharias thought was dead in his life all of a sudden comes to fruition in a moment. And I think that there are things in our lives that you know, maybe we've written off and we're just not going to pray about those things anymore and whatever. But maybe, not always, but maybe God wants us to keep praying about some of those things because maybe God has a plan there. You know, in, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 18, there's the parable of the unjust judge. And the, the whole, I guess the message of that is that men ought always to pray and not to lose heart. Um, I do still, I like to garden every now and then. The one thing that I can't kill, I think, is a tomato plant for the most part. So they're, you know, they're pretty easy to grow in, in South Jersey, most places actually. But if you look at a seed, a seed doesn't look like very much, does it? I mean, so I've seen some seeds and it looks like it's just this gnarly thing. It's all twisted and dried up and everything and it just doesn't look like anything at all you can what's you know it looks like a piece of dirt or a speck of dust or something but if you add water 
at the proper time of year and put it in a place where it's going to get sunlight, all of a sudden that thing starts to grow. And the thing that looked like it was dry and dead and whatever, all of a sudden it starts to grow and, you know, bears fruit in its proper time. And in the same way, I think that <coughs> we see something like that happening here. Romans chapter 4 tells us that our God gives life to the dead and calls those things which, did not ex which do not exist as though they did. So for Zacharias, it was just an average day, and he was just serving the Lord. He's like, okay, you know, it doesn't look like I'm going to have a child, but, you know, I'm just going to keep serving you. I'm still a priest. I'm going to do my thing and all that. But all of a sudden, God decided to end his silence that day for both him and for the nation after 400 years. For Zacharias, it was a lifetime his whole life. For the nation, it was 400 years, long periods of time, respectively. God was about to answer a prayer that Zacharias likely gave up on. And I think that one of the things that we see here is God answering prayer on multiple levels. He, he answers a prayer deep in the heart of an individual man concerning a child, but he also answers the prayer of a nation looking for a Messiah. Not that John the Baptist was the Messiah, but he was the forerunner, and it's a picture of that redemptive plan being worked out. So it's these multiple levels, and it's been said that God is always doing three or four things at the same time. You know, We may have something in our lives that God is praying about, but that may fold into another purpose that God is working somewhere else where there's another need and God is just weaving this wonderful tapestry of all of our lives and he's working out his plan here on earth. He's working out his kingdom and he's using us in the process and we see that we just have a snapshot of one's per one person's life here, a couple, Zacharias and Elizabeth and you know their particular needs and desires and hopes but that's woven together in the context of the greater community, the nation of Israel. And I think that in the church, I mean, I think that things like that happen often where our lives are all interconnected in different ways. And, you know, we may have needs or things that we want, and we think that God is going to answer those needs in a particular way, but God has this bigger picture that he's working out and he wants maybe to use your life and bless you in your life but use that in a context that is going to bless other people around you. Zechariah's blessing became a blessing to himself but also to the whole world through John the Baptist. So it, it's just a wonderful picture of just how God works on different levels. You think of all the babies that were being born just in the natural course of things. You know, couples probably weren't praying or whatever, not that much because it was just happening. Like, oh, pregnant, 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 all that, you know, six, eight kids, whatever. And you have this other couple, and they're praying and nothing's happening. But God allows them to agonize in prayer, and then he answers that uh, 
that prayer. What did John the Baptist do? What was his ministry? He, well, he, he, he baptized, obviously, but he revealed Jesus. That was his primary function. He revealed Jesus to the world. He was the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. He said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He revealed <coughs> Jesus to the world. And God wants to bring fruit into our lives that will reveal Jesus to the world. Right? The Bible tells us that the creation groans for the manifestation of the sons of God. And, you know, God wants to use our lives to reveal Jesus to the, to the world, to manifest the love of God through the person of Jesus Christ working in each one of our lives to the world. So... Paul tells us that, you know, we have this treasure in earth and vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. There's this excellence of the power that comes forth as we trust in him. And, you know, you look at Zacharias and Elizabeth and they were probably hurt by the fact that they never had a child. But this thing that God did, it surely wiped away any tear that they ever had when they began to realize the magnitude of what God was doing in their lives, that he withheld this thing for a time in order to bless them in a way that was just beyond anything that they could imagine. And when Zacharias's answer came to his prayer, where was he? Well, he was in the temple. He was burning incense. The Bible tells us that we're the temple of the Holy Spirit, and we worship God in spirit and truth. But, you know, we... We come before him in prayer and we bring, you know, our requests before God. But we worship in spirit and in truth and trust in the work that he's doing. Some may have looked at Zacharias and Elizabeth and assumed that they were barren because of some sin or some shortcoming in their life. But the Bible tells us that in verse 6, they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. And, you know, there's a story in the Gospel of John about a man born blind, and Jesus' disciples ask him, and they say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or the man's parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. And so it's not about sin. Everybody's, we all came into the world sinners and with a sinful nature and it's not about that but it's about the glory of God being revealed and that's the sort of thing that we see here with Elizabeth and, and Zacharias that it wasn't their sin or anything that they had done but it's so the glory of God could be revealed and uh, I think that's what we see here sometimes maybe there's <coughs> a branch in our lives that's been cut off maybe there's some ministry that we've been involved in in the past and it's been cut off and it doesn't seem like there's any fruit that's coming forth but there's a purpose for that uh, Jesus in John 15 he says I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away and every branch that bears fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit 
God prunes fruitful branches and sometimes he moves things around and, you know, he may cut something off that seems like a perfectly good thing. But the purpose of that is that he wants to bring more fruit. And I think that we see all these things taking place. And I think we probably have to wrap it up here pretty soon. John's message was to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He basically prepared people for the coming of Jesus. And obviously we've seen that, you know, this past week as we celebrate the birth of Jesus. John the Baptist was just the forerunner, but it's just a, a picture of God working just a wonderful work through human frailty to bring this person who's going to be the forerunner of Jesus the Messiah and you know God's gift to the world God's plan of redemption just working out through the ages and, and he's in this room today you know we've all at some point in our lives God has crashed into each one of our lives in the same way that he did with Zacharias and he's all doing things in our lives today and we just need to trust him and walk in those things. The Bible tells us that we are his workmanship and that he's given us these works that he's prepared in advance that we should walk in them. And I believe that he's prepared works for each one of us to walk in in the same way as um, Zacharias. So let's be sensitive to those things and let's continue to trust in the Lord with all of our hearts and not lean on our understanding and to keep praying just like Zacharias did and you never know when God is going to crash into your life so let's uh, pray and Father we thank you just for your faithfulness we thank you for who you are we thank you that you had this plan before the foundations of the earth just to redeem a peculiar people for yourself. We thank you that you have brought salvation into our lives and that you've chosen to use us, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would just give us a sensitivity to the things that you're doing. And we pray, Lord, just that you would work in our lives and that the love of Jesus would flow through our lives. We pray that nothing would hinder that, Lord, but that we would just be vessels of your love and that ultimately your kingdom would come, Lord. We're looking forward to that day. And we lift all these things up before you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.